Back to Swobis Apple and quit out the Wisties switchboard. Living with languages. Hello, you're listening to another episode of Switchboard with me, Eddie, and I'm joined by fellow Switchboard producer, Blanca. Hola, if you'd like to get in touch during the show, go on to switchboard at camofem.co.uk or on www.camofem.co.uk and tell us what you think of our show. And just for any listeners who've not been listening so far, this is our second episode, and Switchboard is all about connecting people in Cambridge to other people in Cambridge who have interesting stories to tell. And as we said at the top of the programme just a few seconds ago, this week we're focusing on languages. We're going to hear from a student poet at Jesus who holds one of the most prestigious positions in Welsh poetry, another student who speaks over 10 languages, and we're going to find out why 30 people a week are learning how to speak Latin. But, but, but first, Caroline Thornham and I want to speak to, went to speak to my supervisor, Dr Jana Heilet, who has had a truly amazing life spanning various continents and languages. So, originally you were from England... No, I was born in Prague, in, in Czechoslovakia, Prague. which doesn't exist anymore. So my father was half Czech and half Polish, and my mother half English and half Swiss. I partly grew up in Prague and partly in China. At home, my mother spoke to me in English, my father spoke to me in Czech, and they spoke German to each other. <laughs> and did your mum understand Czech? No, not very well, not because, very well. you know, when I was born, she, I mean, she came to Czechoslovakia speaking no Czech at all. Um, so obviously she had to learn it. Yeah, and I remember you said once when when I had one of my first supervisions and I kept saying, it's so amazing that you speak so many languages and you said it's quite annoying sometimes though because then it's sort of like I'm a party trick. Yeah, quite so. <laughs> and that stuck with me. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. But you see it as a gift though. I, As a child I didn't realise it mm. was a gift. I used to get really irritated uh, because, you know, as a child you don't want to be different. So it was pretty tough, you know, especially, you know, you're talking about post-war Czechoslovakia, which was a tough place anyway, and uh, foreigners were distrusted. So having an English mother uh, was not the easiest thing. Mm. And then, of course, in the 1950s, uh, this was a period of trials. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about them, but there were the so-called Slansky trials, where a lot of people were... Uh, you know, the worst affected were hanged uh, for treason, supposedly, you know, for spying for England and Israel. And my father was involved in the trials. He was sent to the mines for re-education. Oh, my God. So, you know, having an English mother was not the simplest thing at school. Oh, yeah. And so I tried to not to speak English, you know, when I was at school much. Um, but then you moved, when did you move to China from? When I was 12 years old. When you were 12. Mm, mm. And so then in China, did you go to a Mandarin-speaking school? Yeah, I first went to a Chinese school for a year, and then I went to a Russian school. But you that. arrived, and initially when you were in school, you probably didn't understand anything. I didn't understand a thing, no. It was kind of, that didn't bother me so much. It was more the fact that, you know, China was very poor. Yeah. <clears throat> there was no heating. <laughs> So we used to do exercises every every two or three hours, you know, and you saw these in, in, in the films about China, you know, people doing exercises and how good it was, but it was actually just to keep warm enough to, you know, to keep sitting in the school. Yeah. It was really cold. So too. then did they move you? So then, so then in 
Beijing, there were several schools, foreign schools. So we went to see the German school, the French school, um, the English school, and the Russian school. So that's just, it was, so, a, it was by it was, chance yeah. or you went to Russian It was purely school? by chance. And also because the Russians had been thrown out of China. You know, so the Russian school was half empty because all the Russians had been thrown out because Russia and China had had a falling out. And by this point, you already spoke some Mandarin. Uh, yeah, but I didn't speak that in the school. In the school On the other school. hand, my best friend at school was half Chinese and half Russian. But you yeah. told me that you also learned Spanish in China, while you were yes, in China. Yes, that was that was another piece of kind of luck because the school, uh, the college, the university had a huge number of Cuban students, Cuban students who were firstly very good looking, so I was by then fifteen, <laughs> and secondly brilliant dancers. So I wanted to learn to dance and I wanted to speak to them. So my friend, my my half Chinese friend and I, um, uh, my parents had a neighbour who was a Chilean. Uh, the wife of a very well-known Chilean poet, because Chile, of course, had had yeah. their problems, so they were exiled. So she taught us Spanish, and she she had this extraordinary method, because she believed that you should learn a language by reading something you don't understand, and then you kind of it's you don't have the context, so you have, you can't guess. So she gave us Kafka's trial to read in <laughs> Spanish. So <laughs> there we were. Kind of, I remember thinking. Do I not understand this because this is, you know, a weird book? Or is it because my Spanish is so bad that I yeah. can't understand anything? But, but did it, was, it work? But it clearly it did because I can speak to you, can't I? So, yes. yeah. You know, I get by in Spanish very, very easily on uh, that that acquisition. Yeah. Well, do you think that it's that it's a gift as well because you sort of feel like an international... Um, an international citizen like instead of having one place of belonging you have an international belonging or do you think that that's kind of a hindrance because you don't really have one no I've never thought it was a hindrance I also think that you understand your own culture insofar as you have one but yeah so what would you say your place of belonging is um well now it is England England because you know I uh one of the tests people say is you know what is the language that's dominating in your mind is what you dream in. And it, to some extent, that's true. So when I'm in England, I dream in English. When I'm in Russia, I dream in Russian. Um, and oddly enough, when I was in China, I dreamt in Chinese. That was Dr. Jana Howlett speaking to Blanca and Caroline Thornham. And our next story also involves someone who is proficient in many languages, but Oscar is probably proficient in a few more than Jana. He's currently doing an MPhil in linguistics, and he's a polyglot who is conversational in over 10 languages. Blanca and I went to speak to him in the Modern Languages faculty earlier this week. Well, um, no, I suppose, well, I suppose I didn't know that I always had a, um, a skill or an interest in languages. Um, but I, I suppose I found, I realised um, quite quickly when I started um, learning them at school and I realised that other people um, didn't react in quite the same way. So, for example, um, when... Um, in my first year of secondary school, I started learning German, and I just assumed that um, everything was going to be taught in German, that there was going to be no English used in the classroom. So I was, had been ill the first lesson, so I um, prepared some things, I looked some things up just to say and explain. Um, and so I, I came in and I said that I, I, I said a couple of sentences in, in German, and, and the teacher was pretty surprised, mm. and then and went back to speaking English. Um, 
for the rest of the lesson, which and I, I was quite surprised about that. The level I, I imagined language teaching would be at was not quite, and the pace it then went at was then not quite what I imagined before I started doing it. My native language is English, so that's obviously um, the language I uh, speak at the highest level. Um, and then the next one would be um, German, and um, for um, I, I got um, pretty much the maximum mark you could get in the um, Orville in my final year. Normally when I'm in Germany or I start speaking to Germans, then they, they normally assume that, 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 I, that I'm German. Um, and um, then... Um, Italian and um, French and um, Spanish, uh, particularly French, I'm um, pretty confident. And then um, there are um, several which I um, then speak um, maybe slightly below that level, but at a, um, at a, a conversationally at least. Um, so um, Portuguese, um, Dutch, um, Polish, um, Romanian and conversational in um, Swiss-German dialect, which is quite um, different to standard German. It, it, it's not mutually intelligible. And um, I can um, speak um, Esperanto to a um, high level. That's a constructed language. Um, and then I read Latin reasonably well and I can have a bit of, do a bit of conversation in it. And then um, Russian, I have an, an elementary basic level of, but I'm not I'm very good at it. I can write for that. <laughs> and do you um, have a technique to learning languages? Um, well, I suppose um, I try to learn the, um, the basic structures of the language and um, the core vocabulary quickly and then try to live part of my life through the medium of that language or to read regularly in that language or to, to use it an awful lot and then to um, and assimilate it, yes, without um, it being um, too much of a burden uh, mentally, for example. But then when I have some spare time, say half a day or something like that, then I will often spend maybe um, five hours um, doing... Um, I don't know, perhaps some exercises, perhaps listening to some to something, perhaps reading something. Um, I tend to um, read um, certainly the news and um, reports or um, doc documents or research from different domains um, most often because um, that those are about things because those are things which interest me. Um, and I find um, identifying with the um, the people in literature, the empathy and the um, the personal element of uh, the human element of literature, quite difficult a lot of the time. Um, and I find it quite difficult to keep going and be interested in it. I think that's that is a shame. That is a some kind of I suppose a failure on my part. But and um, I should um, try. Um, I do sometimes read it, and I um, should probably do it more. Maybe not now because I've not got the time right in the moment. But um, why do you think you should be more interested in that? Um, because I suppose it tells, it would give me an insight, at least if I were better at it, into um, how people behave and what motivates them. Um, but we all have different interests and different strengths, and sometimes we do just have to accept that we're more interested or we're better at certain things, and that you could concentrate, you should concentrate maybe on doing that, you should do a bit of the other things to keep make, make you a more rounded person. Um, I suppose I um, used to like to read books about... Um, any, any 
thing I could get my hands on, really, and then, I don't know, um, things about, I don't know, geography or things about animals or whatever I could find, and then um, summarise the key information and just um, write it out into a booklet. Or I remember I was also very interested in um, railway timetables, I still am, and that um, one weekend... Um, I was um, one of my parents bought me a European um, rail timetable, and I I, I, remember I spent all Saturday um, writing out um, connections from it when I was about five, and um, my mother was not very happy that my father had um, let me do this all day that I should have been doing um, more varied things. Um, you enjoyed it, yeah. We just want to say thank you so much for the messages we've been getting in. Now that was Oscar, and I think, Eddie, you actually met Oscar for the first time while you were recording this next passage, package that we're about to hear? I did, I did. He was he was learning Latin in the Latin-speaking society. The week before last, Eddie actually went along to try to find out why tens of people in Cambridge are learning how to speak Latin. Salvete! Incipiamus! Hosea, habio ad legendum. If you walk into a certain room in the Cambridge History Faculty on a Wednesday afternoon, you might think for a few seconds that you'd just step back into ancient Rome. Four students from Peterhouse College who are passionate about the ancient world are teaching around 30 people how to speak Latin. As this is only the Spoken Latin Reading Group's second ever class, the beginners are focusing on introductions. Josie and Eloise are running this class, while next door, Sam and Thomas lead the advanced group. Whether a beginner or a veteran, Chucking a ball or pilam around the room seems to get tongues wagging. I'm Felicity. Um, yes, it was lots of fun particularly when people sort of interject their own comments in Latin in the middle of the text they're reading. Uh, you mentioned that you're going on this trip in March. Can you tell, us, tell, tell me a bit about that? So I'm, most, of, most people who hear about this will probably think that's the saddest thing I've ever heard of, but it makes me really happy. So there's a trip organised by a group at Oxford University in March to a place that is the only community in the world where Ciceronian Latin is the everyday language. So we're going for a week and there are four of us at Cambridge who are joining this trip mm. and there'll be lectures and reading classes and lessons in a whole load of different subjects. So I've requested 
lessons in performance speaking and rhetoric and recitation. Um, and there will also be trips to archaeological sites around Rome, and all of this is conducted in Latin, so we have lectures in Latin and reading groups, and everyone mm. speaks Latin. It's wow. going to be great. Norman Mihi is Gunva. Um, my name is Gunva. Um, I did my undergraduates in history and Latin in Denmark, so for two years, and now I'm doing an MPhil in medieval history, so I'm learning medieval Latin. So it's a little bit different from what we're doing here. But so you're learning medieval Latin in order to, so you're doing a degree, like a postgrad in medieval history. Yeah, and in Phil. Yeah, but so but why do you what? But why would learning to speak Latin actually help you if you're just learning mm -hmm. if you're just dealing with written texts? I just thought that it would be fun. I guess a bit like uh, Felicity. Yes. Yeah, it's just it's fun to be able to speak. And people often ask me, so do you speak Latin? And I'm always like, no, but maybe now I can say yes. Quidas nomen tibi. Edus. 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 But we, we all do various forms of history and our research involves um, needing to read Latin. This is Eloise, who was running the beginner's session with Josie. Originally, Tom and I got some very nice funding from Peterhouse, which is, our co which is the college of all of us now. Um, yes. <laughs> it's the, the centre for um, <laughs> the Canterbridgean Renaissance. And yes. so, um, we, um, so we were funded by Peterhouse to go for the summer. Um, and now we're hoping to turn this into society and get some funding again. But at the moment, um, we're just doing this for the love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know if there are other parts of you know, other universities or campuses and where, where, where there has been a little bit of a flourishing of of speaking Latin. So Oxford, uh, some of the people who were there with Eloise and Josie and I uh, went back and set up a society like this about a year ago, uh, so the, the year before we did, and they've really, uh, really grown and seen a lot of interest in that as well. So we definitely think there's a very good precedent mm. uh, for spoken Latin being alive and well, I think. And apparently... Um Britain in general is very behind on this. And in, in, in America, people um, have uh, are more spoken Latin groups at universities, and certainly um, in Europe, and particularly in Italy, there's been a, a, lot of, a lot of interest in this kind of thing. So it's really you know, absolutely essential that we don't fall behind in the global classics arms race. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 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 do you remember it? Mm. You do? We don't I don't think the first time. bit. Okay, we could do that one is easier. Yeah. Okay. Is that was the Latin Reading Society that Eddie went to speak to this week. Next, we have Gwyn from Jesus College. Gwyn won the bard competition in Wales. He explained this tradition in his life as a Welsh mother tongue speaker, as well as reading some of his beautiful poetry while speaking to me, Raphael Corber Hoffman, and Hannah Abbas. So two years ago, um, I won the chair at the uh, National Irdi Stadbod, and then I won it again last year. Um, now, the tradition of the chair dates back um, thousands of years, back to the beginning of the medieval period almost, um, where a 
bards, the best bard in the courts, would be awarded a chair at the high table to sing next to the kings and princes. Um, and the role of poetry back then was infinitely more significant than it is now. You know, they would um, uh, write poetry and read it out loud to eulogise the kings and princes almost as a vehicle for political expression and a propaganda tool almost. And that tradition of awarding a chair to the best bard has survived in the modern Eisteddfod, where every year a, a, um, a chair is awarded to the best poet. So neither my grandparents speak English, uh, speak Welsh, sorry, they were both English speakers, um, but my parents both went to Welsh-speaking schools um, and they gave that to me. There's a special art form in Welsh called Kinghaneth, um, which translates best to harmony. Um, and it's called Cani um, Caith, confined song, confined because of the pretty intricate set of rules that underpins it. So it's to do with sort of assonance and rhyme. Um, and so I really got into that. Um, and then I went on to, to write poetry. So think maybe of a sonnet in English. You have iambic pentameter, usually 10 lines, uh, 10 syllables in each line, a uh, rigid rhyming pattern um, with a rhyming couplet at the end, 14 lines, times 100 with a gunghaneth because you have um, a very, very intricate, complex set of rules that underpins it. And it was deemed, I think, um, that it would take a poet in the Middle Ages nine years to master this craft. Yes, that it straddles the field between um, music and prose. And I think that's what poetry really is, and the Welsh language um, lends itself perfectly to that. Um, I tend to write in free verse, but I, I do write in Cynghaneth as well. The only problem with Cynghaneth is that it can confine what you have to say because you have to follow these very, very rigid set of rules. Now, once you master that, much like when you master a language, you can express anything you want, and it actually um, gives free reign to creativity as opposed to impeding it in any way. Um, but you really do have to be a, a poetic genius before you can really master the art of Cynghaneth. So I think 25% of the Welsh population, so a quarter, speak Welsh. Um, fluently, can, would you say? 15% um, speak it fluently. Okay. So it is taught in every school, including um, English-speaking schools. It's a compulsory subject up to GCSE. Unfortunately, most students then go on to drop it and they forget it. Do you think there's a connection between the Welsh language and social inequality in the UK in general? Do you think Welsh is a good expression of that inequality, the way it's treated? Um, I think it is, and particularly where I'm from in the South Wales Valleys, we have a higher rate of unemployment, of poverty, of, of poverty, of drug abuse, and you know all the all the problems that come hand in hand with poverty. poverty. Right. And you know, it's true in the 1980s when you had Margaret Thatcher and a Conservative government, the valleys were decimated. Mm -hmm and they haven't really recovered since then. Um, and yes, that's what I wrote about two years ago, okay. responding um, to an article written um, in the BBC. Mm. And uh, so what was it that you wrote about last year? Last year, yes, you're, that was a response to the film I, Daniel Blake, um. Um, a film written by uh, Ken Loach, um, following the history of Daniel Blake and exposing the, um, the benefit system that we have in the UK. Um, Ken Loach's film was really a harrowing depiction of modern Britain. So that's called, um, what's that called? An ekphrastic poem where a piece of art responds 
to another piece of art. But I am invited often to lead creative writing workshops in schools or to give talks on my poetry. Um, so it's a great privilege and I think actually there is a lot more prestige given to Welsh poets as opposed to perhaps English poets and it is really um, encouraged actually from a, a young age to write poetry. I think poetry has become elitist in a way but in Wales, on the contrary, Wales, um, Welsh poetry is often read in pubs and clubs and you know um, chapel vestries or, or town halls. Mm. So it really is something to be read out loud, particularly because we have this structure called King Hanedd Harmony. It is something to be read out loud. And that's what it was traditionally, something to be read out loud for the listeners as opposed to readers. You know, they were listening. And that was to the accompany of a harp then, usually, in the court. So looking at it from an outside perspective and seeing these quite bombastic ceremonies where uh, a bard is awarded a chair yeah. actually elicits <laughs> even more fascination than it would in Wales. And people have been really, really supportive, actually, of, of what I do, and they've taken a real interest. OK, I'll read a poem called Catalonia. I wrote this during the tumultuous time we saw there um, during their referendum. Um, and I also wrote it as part of a challenge called the 100 Poem Challenge, where four poets came together in a house in North Wales, which is Lord George's former, uh, Lloyd George's former house. Um, and the challenge was to write 100 poems between us in 24 hours. Wow. So <laughs> I wrote this poem uh, during that time. My ratat democratiae think hero velat gone aith, a francon efro heed, and halar wla du gwelli, doi ne howl, boy dia ne na, an echo wythe gernica. A goroch birth a gwerid, a dawgwai veich tediae geed, and a hall yw hovni nu, a herri or ai betaru, egir a drus in gwegian a rihon. No pasaran. Beudin pob doi a aith and ratat democratiaith. So that was Gwyn from Jesus College speaking to us about his position as the bard in Wales. Um, it was such a pleasure meeting him this week because I actually go to Jesus as well and I'd only ever met him on his social scene and it was really nice seeing how passionate he is about his poetry. And also being from Ireland myself, we, it's compulsory in Ireland to learn Gaelic, Irish Gaelic, up until the age of 18, but a lot of people drop it before they get, or, well, they try, they try to drop it before they get to A-level, so it's really nice meeting someone like Gwyn, who's kept it up and has really flourished in his mother tongue. We've been getting in some messages to the show as well, so me and Eddie are going to read some out. Yeah, I have one here from George. Oh, just, just go back to it. I think he was, I think it's actually from George's mum, but I'm not sure whether he's joking or not. He says, or she says, Latin is the best language in the world. Um, it's helpful every day of my life. So potentially a little bit tongue-in-cheek there. And uh, we had another one from Adam who says he's loving the show. And I think as well we had one from, um, oh, from an anonymous listener who says, OMG, Switchboard, big fan. So keep getting those messages in. We've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, and also we should probably tell you about our next show, which will be the same time next week at 12.30. Um, so each week we take a new theme and next week we'll be collecting stories around Cambridge based around the idea of the military, the army, soldiers, that, that kind of theme. So if you have any stories or any, you know anything to do with, with, with those themes, um, get in touch. 
what's our what's our email address, Blanca? Yeah, I'll I'll fill you in on that. If you'd like to give us some tip offs, um, get in touch by emailing in at switchboard at varsity.co.uk. We just had another message in here. I really am George's mum and not tongue in cheek with four exclamation marks. So thank you very much for clarifying that for us there, George's mum. So I don't know what your name one. is. We just got another, another one. one. God, how many family members has he has he got? Latin is endlessly useful. Well, hopefully that's not from George's mum as well, because otherwise we'd be broadcasting too much of her thoughts. Oh, but, um, oh they're, they're flooding in now. They're flooding in. Blanca, why don't you read, read, read us that one? Fascinating episode, and you both have lovely voices for radio. Oh, that's very kind. That's definitely my mum. Well, yes, and as I was saying, so our next episode will be about languages. Oh, sorry, our, this episode has been about languages. I've just been distracted. Uh, yes, the military, but also if you have any other interesting stories or tip-offs or people who you think would be interesting for us to talk to, we've got a team of around nine or ten people now working on this show with us. Um, do do send us an email, as Blanca just said, switchboard at, at varsity.co.uk. And also, we just want to say a big thanks to our other team members, most specifically Caroline Thornman, Raphael Korber-Hoffman, Kendall Karadaman, Aoife Hogan, Dan Gain, and to Isaac Squires. And please tune in next week at 12.30 on Sunday. Yeah.